Welcome to Everyone a Changemaker, where we interview the world's leading social entrepreneurs on their journey towards creating social impact and systemic change. Tune in and discover innovative solutions for the most pressing challenges that we face today. Brought to you by Ashoka Innovators for the Public. I want to welcome Shubhendu Sharma to the Everyone a Changemaker web series. Shubhendu has been an Ashoka Fellow since 2013, and he's also the founder and director of A-Forest. Welcome, Shubhendu. Why don't you give us a quick introduction? Thank you, David. So my name is Shubhendu. I am based out of Uttarakhand. I run a company called A-Forest, which specializes in making forests, especially in urban areas. But geography is not a constraint. Any place which would have been a forest a long time ago is the kind of area where we focus on. So anywhere and everywhere, wherever there is sowing, there is sunlight and moisture. We are bringing back these forests, whether it's in urban spaces, factories, farms, municipalities, hotels, resorts, everywhere. This is what I do for a living. Thanks, Shubhendu. If, if you could tell us a little bit about the problem that you noticed, how, how did you discover that deforestation was such a big issue? Was there anything in your personal journey that led you to this path of building back forests and, and starting a forest as an organization? Very fortunately, my exposure to forest and making a forest did not happen because of me getting exposed to a problem. I was exposed to the Miyawaki method of afforestation by Dr. Akira Miyawaki himself. I used to work at Toyota, where he happened to visit Toyota India in 2009 on the invitation of the managing director of that time. And the idea was that we wanted to make that factory pollution-free or maybe even carbon neutral. So the idea was to make these large expenses of forest in the factory premise to create a better environment for the employees and the nearby area. So for me, the focus was to just know what actually this methodology is for the love of it. And even today, that's the focus right now. To be honest, I am not very much moved by the crisis or the marketing of the crisis or any crisis that is happening in the world via media or via the kind of information that we consume. It was not driven by that. It was purely driven by the beauty and the love of forest and growing forests. That's what was my motivation to start making these forests on my own. I started from the backyard of my own house. So I learned the method in the factory where I used to work. I implemented it on my smallest scale that was possible to pull off by an individual at that time. And because I wanted to make more of these, we started the company and continued making these forests. Even today, I don't know whether these forests are contributing to solution of one or 10 or 20 problems or not. I know that they would be doing it, but that's just a byproduct of bringing back the natural environment of any particular for those who are not familiar, could you could you probably explain to us what the Miyawaki method is and a little bit of a background about it? So the ideal forest is the forest that nature would have grown at a particular place. Now, nature takes thousands of years to fix the natural vegetation of a particular geography. For any particular place to become green naturally, the first thing to appear is grasses, if there is soil available. First, the grasses would grow, then shrubs. And slowly, the 
vegetation of a particular place will become more and more complex and it will move towards trees, towards more stable ecosystems to reach a stage which is called a climax vegetation, the climax forest. And this climax forest is the kind of forest that we, once we make them, they will be there probably forever. So the Miyawaki method or Dr. Miyawaki's focus during his lifetime was to find ways to directly plant the climax forest because once planted, it will stay there probably forever without any maintenance. And he used to call it, no management is the best management. So what nature would have taken to regrow 250, 300, 400 years, you can actually create exactly the same kind of quasi-natural forest in maybe 10 to 15, 20 years. And this is what Miyawaki method is. To find out the potential natural vegetation of a particular place, the vegetation for which nature naturally has the potential to regrow, which you don't have to grow, but that is the native vegetation of the place. And you segregate the climax forest species and you plant them right on the day one so that in 10 years, you get to see a forest that would look like a hundred year old natural forest. Now, this would be quite different from, you know, just those large scale awareness drives to plant back trees. This, I guess, would require a lot of study of what the natural vegetation is. What is the ecosystem of that place? So could you tell us a little bit, how do you go into a region and, and figure out the ecosystem? The observation of a botanist will tell you what is natural and what has been introduced. So let's say close to Bangalore, we have Benarata National Park. You go into the Benarata National Park, not everything that looks green in that area is native. Maybe you will have 80% native stuff, but the remaining 20%, which is non-native, is going to contaminate your natural environment. And when you look or when you scan through the vegetation of a particular place through the eyes of a botanist and segregate native versus non-native, after a few iterations, you reach a list of species which is natural for that area. Also, every terrain will have a certain kind of vegetation indigenous to it. So even if we are in a city like Bangalore, we can't have a one list fits all geographies of Bangalore. Place like Nandi Hills will have a different type of vegetation. Areas around the lakes of Bangalore will have a different type of vegetation. So this understanding has to be developed and then you will be able to pick the right species purely by observation. Now, in a few places, those natural patches of vegetation are not available at all. Like if you go to Dubai, if you are trying to do the survey in New Delhi, maybe not see many of these green field development. Usually everything is eradicated in the first place and then things are replanted. So you won't find natural vegetation of that place. So in those cases, we might have to dig into the history of the place. It could be old paintings, it could be literature, folklore, journals written during colonial times, surveying the expanse of this land. In Jordan, we have worked with some scientists who would take the soil sample and identify the cell DNA of different species. And from that fossil DNA records, we'll be able to pull out the names of species that used to grow there a long time ago. So a deserted country like Jordan really had 
oak forests in it. And there were lions and tigers, even elephants in the Jordanian region. Now, this is something which can only be revealed if you change the, the, the techniques of observation and try implementing that. You know, many a times for a place like Rajasthan, people might say, oh, you can't grow a forest here in 2017 when we went there to make our first forest. You can't make a forest here because this area has always been like this. This used to be the common narrative. The problem with this narrative is that the scale of a forest, the timeline of a forest is usually the thousand plus years. So if you see a young forest today, by the time it will fully mature, it will be thousand years. This means around 20 human generations. So the knowledge has to be passed in its wholeness for next 20 human generations to really know what used to be the vegetation of one generation of forest in, in that geography. When that doesn't happen, if you remove a forest from a particular place today, 500 years down the line, Every human living in that area won't have any recollection of. And this is the reason why so many people think that particular geography is deserted and it will always remain a desert. They even start to call it a natural death without realizing that it was a result of human intervention. And just because there are no humans living in that area today does not mean that there was never a human intervention in that area. It was abandoned. It was deserted and abandoned because of its lack of natural resources. So how do you go about building back that historical knowledge generation after generation is in order to really implement the Miyawaki method and, and figure out what is a natural ecosystem? What are your methods of tracing back? Original Miyawaki method, the first step is to go to a natural forest and do this. When the work in Jordan got started, our trainer, Mr. Nishino, he visited the Jordan site and then started to do his survey, he could not find anything which could be selected for the kind of survey that we want to do. Because the sites were not well qualified, those forest or natural vegetation area would not qualify for the kind of sample size we would need. But there was a, you can call it intuition or confidence that at this particular place, we can bring back a natural forest because before Jordan, we had done something in Iran very successfully. So we, we kind of knew that even if we are not sitting on that knowledge right now, what is the native vegetation of this place? We can actually still grow a forest. We might not be able to grow the best possible combination of species, but we can still do something here. So the method got changed there. We had to improve our methodology to find out how to do the survey when there is no model forest available, when there is no sample forest available. And that's when people who would trace DNAs of different species from the fossil soil samples. It's just like, you know, if, if you find a cold bone in, in the soil, you can actually trace the animal whom that bone would have come. Similarly, if you find fossil pollen in the soil, you can actually trace the species. And that was the technique of finding out that lost forest of Jordan. Coming back to your story, so we rewind to 2009. What were you doing before that? You met this Miyawaki. And how, how did you get on this journey of building back forests? Were you always working in the space or what was your journey like? So I was born very close to a forest. My home is just half an hour drive from the Jim Corbett National Park. 
people from all over the world come here to see tigers. We have a number of tigers in this area. But I was always fascinated by machines. I always wanted to become an engineer, a mechanical engineer, which eventually I became. I always wanted to work in industry. Even today, I'm very good at working with tools. I really love working with machinery. My dream job, my dream company was Toyota. And I was lucky and very hardworking with God's grace. Got into Toyota after one year of me trying to get into that company. And little did I know that in Toyota, again, I will discover another focus of life, which will expose me to a totally different world altogether. So Toyota was a great two and a half year long journey of learning so many things and becoming the kind of professional that I am today. Forest is 11 years old. It's been already more than 12 years I worked at Toyota. But the ethics, the style, the thirds of management or business practices. There is a lot of similarity between a forest and the part of Toyota that I was exposed to. So my exposure to the automobile industry was not just the glamour part of automobile industry, you know, where uh, people of my age, I was 22 at that time, was the kind of poster job for a mechanical engineer, 22-year-old guy working for Toyota, went to Japan. And then we were working with those cars, which the world outside had not seen yet. Some of them will come to mass production. They, are, they would, could be concept cars. You get to see the cutting edge of technology and how things are produced. It, it was extremely fascinating. But then you also get to see the other side of it. What it takes to make any product. It takes mountains. You literally take out an entire mountain to get that ore from which you will harvest, you will pull out a small chunk of steel and rest of the entire mountain will be thrown back as a town on which there used to be a forest, there used to be villages, there used to be flowing rivers and whatnot. All that has become an externality right now just because somebody wanted to buy a Toyota car. So you see this conflict happening in front of you Every three minutes, we would produce one car and one car getting out of that factory every three minutes means that so much, 20 times, 100 times of the volume of that car, that amount of natural resource, whether it is rubber coming from the rubber trees in Kerala or whether it is some iron ore being mined in every small thing that is mass produced or even produced is converting a natural resource into dump every single second. Knowing the fact that irrespective of how great this product is, whether it's a Toyota or a Honda or Mercedes or even the most expensive, the best, the most robust car, won't last for more than 100 years. So eventually, in a single human lifetime, this product and many of these products, which can be consumed by this human in one single lifetime, are going to end up in a junkyard. They are never going to become that natural resource from which it was originated. So sooner or later, we are, one, going to run out of the natural resources that we are consuming, at, especially at this pace today. And our existence is totally dependent on natural resources, air, food, water. The companies can never produce it. They can only pack or repack it, but they cannot be the prime mover who would originate it, who would produce it. So irrespective of 
whatever great extent of industrial progress we make, we are heading for a complete eradication of modern human lives. This realization happened at Toyota and this was also the same time when I happened to meet Dr. Akira. I consider myself extremely lucky that you are living that conflict. You are in the middle of it and you start thinking about a solution or I might not even have thought about the solution. Yes, we are great Toyota producing these best of the best cars in the world. But you see the conflict right in your face. And then, you know, suddenly you see that there is somebody who can tell all those barren lands that are produced by this industry back into that stage from where they would have started to get deteriorated in one single human lifetime. This was probably the smartest, the most intelligent application of science and art that I had I had seen even better than making cars. And I think that was the tipping point where I was determined that I was primed in that direction right in that half an hour of meeting Dr. Akira. It took me another two years to learn the method and implement it in the factory as a volunteer in my own house as a project leader, as a student to read and learn a lot more about the methodology. So it took around two years. But after that, I was confident enough to get out of the company and start as a forest-making professional. Between 2011 now, 11 years, mm-hmm. 3,000 forests have been built back. And a forest is running strong. Tell us a little bit about the journey. So it's 2011, you left Toyota, started a forest, you tried a backyard experiment probably. And now going forward, what's that journey been like? How did A-Forest evolve through the years? I did not know anything else other than businesses. So I did not know what packaging of these services. The kind of change that we wanted to make was, we see a barren batch of land, we want to convert it into a national forest. Now, I could have done it as an NGO. I could have done it as a passionate individual. There were many other ways. My exposure to the world till that point of time I was 25 years old at that time. Was companies, businesses. I had seen Toyota, a very big company, and I had seen supplier companies. There could be five people manufacturing plant. There could be a proprietorship. I had seen private limited companies. So my daily interaction was with service providers, manufacturers. I really liked those people. I really liked those self-dependent individuals who are working hard, making things happen, wanted to do it in a way that we don't become a, an advocacy group. We don't become a fundraising organization. We wanted to become a forest-making organization. I got the brand name A-Forest, got a friend to design the logo, called my college juniors, asked them how to purchase a website. He helped me to buy the website. Then I spent some time in making it, made a presentation. All that stuff, it was a great I mean, starting up a startup is really quite experience. Most of the homework was done while I was working at, at Toyota, you know, conceptualizing the name, buying the domain and whatnot. And fortunately, I also had the support of, of my colleagues at Toyota. So the manager was aware that I'm going to leave Toyota to, to start a forest. Everybody was quite supportive of the idea. The first two years, the way we were marketing ourselves was to go to a conference, set up a store people would come, we would show the pictures of the Toyota forest growing. I would show some pictures of forest of my house and those were the only two projects that I had experience of. And we would say that 
This is something which we provide professionally as a service. So we got a client from there and few more conferences later, few more stalls later and exploring to maybe two, three hundred more people. We got another project that was somebody's backyard, his house backyard. So this was one project we did. We launched our first January 2011. We got our first project in March or April, I think, and second one in August, third we got in December, and this was just 2011, three projects, 2012 entire year, we just got one project and that's it. So, and, and it was very well understood also that for a new company, for somebody who doesn't have any experience, and especially because of my age, I was 26, but I would look 21. That also became a problem because somehow it was difficult to sell something which is worth a few lakh rupees at, at that age you know people don't want to risk that kind of money so yeah 2012 was struggling and that was probably the deciding year to make it or break it kind of decisions and i had to find another ways of making some money to make the ends meet and keep the show running 2012 october i got to speak at inc conference so i spoke at the inc conference People were quite inspired by the idea, by the philosophy. The talk was very well received online. People watched it and started getting a few emails from here and there. And slowly what I saw was that idea itself and the philosophy resonated with so many people that they became the ambassadors of it. If they don't have the land, if they don't have the money, the resources to make a forest on their own, still they would want us to get something done in their city. We would get emails from different cities and they would say, I live in an apartment. I really don't have anything that I can do for you. But whenever you are in, in, in our cities, please come and stay with us. This is the least we can do. So stuff like that. Everybody wanted a forest to be successful. And I think it's because of that kind of support. We eventually did very well in 2000. 14, we started getting projects from corporates. Somebody read about our work. The MD of Samsonite, he read about our work here, Economic Times. The title of the news was, we just don't want deforest to become a successful company, but we want this deforestation industry to grow. And that became the headline of that article. So the MD of Samsonite read it, and who being the MD of such a large global organization, Probably resonated with him very well. He understood how industries function. And somewhere I also, either I understood how industries function or I was on that journey of how to create an industry, not just a company. He called us for a meeting. I happened to meet him and his partner and we made a forest at Samsonite. But because of, of people who also happened to be our clients or supporters, that the kind of spectrum that we got to meet and work with was so wide. We would work with a labor who is getting 400 rupees a day table salary. From there to Prime Minister of Singapore. That spectrum was so wide. Corporate leaders, CXOs or billion dollar companies. Or because of that, we were able to create that ecosystem very fast. 2015, we went open source. We took the SOPs, which were the intellectual property of a forest worth a lot of money because we were the only company at that time we were making scores. Rejected all the investments offer that we were getting, and they ran into from few millions to hundreds of 
millions of dollars and just went open source and dumped everything on on, on Dropbox, announced it in a TED talk. I became a TED fellow in 2014, immediately after becoming a Shoka fellow. Got to speak at the TED stage where it was 30th anniversary of TED. So you had Al Gore, Bill Gates, Hollywood celebrities. I mean, who's who of the world were in the audience. And that time, a forum just had two influence. It was me and one colleague who was back in India and I was in Canada delivering the talk at that stage. Thinking that, you know, maybe Ted has made a mistake of they got fooled or something that they selected me and put me on the stage. But, and I was extremely nervous, delivered that talk. Two months later, I received an email that the talk is going to go online. And that's when I realized that it wasn't that bad. But somewhere, the idea resonated with the global audience so well that almost overnight, we became a good international or globally recognized company or a brand. It started a movement of not just a few more individuals making forests in their backyard, but I can see the exact transformation that happened in my life happening in their life. They would start with a passion project, make a forest in their backyard or their farm. They would start. The next step would be they will start a company, an enterprise or a non-profit and they can just not stop making more and more of these forests. And the scale also, whether it starts with a tiny forest of a few parking spaces, it just scales up to a few hectares, in some cases, few hundred hectares in just five to six years. I've seen it in the Netherlands, in Pakistan, in Iran, US, in Chile, in England, big way in England right now, in, in Latin America, in Nicaragua, in Almost anywhere and everywhere I've been, a friend of mine was starting an enterprise in Switzerland and she started something called Sugi Project. Sugi is a crowdfunding platform to fund afforestation projects globally. So that time she wanted to do something pre-plantation or afforestation. When we sat together, Sugi came up that there are a number of forest makers. What they need is financial support. They can't do it alone. We need a platform where like Kickstarter, where you can raise funds for making photos. She, she found Sugi and we, we started a, a campaign with 10 forest makers who were following our methodology, brought them on Sugi. And suddenly we saw that this has become such a centralized democratic movement where people are coming together through the, a platform like Sugi, giving $5, $10, $1 to support a project in Tanzania in Australia, in Africa, in Cameroon, in, in Leeds, in the UK, or Karachi in Pakistan, all on one single platform or a project in Rajasthan in India. And you don't have to be a, a, a forest maker or a tree planter or a tree hugger for that. You could be a, a suit and tie corporate, but you can still make that tangible change on ground happen. Why? Because Though you don't have the time or resources to make a forest by yourself reading the open source methodology, but you can contribute to a project for those people who are passionate forest makers and making a tangible change in different parts of the world. And you can choose your favorite part of the land. You want to fund a forest in France, go ahead and do it. You want to fund a forest in India, go ahead and all on one single platform. So these innovations are not owned by a forest a forest has a very vital role to play in it but they're independent projects independent companies and this is the ecosystem this is the marketplace 
that is needed to make a global change that that all of us are looking for, but only few of us are able to get their hands dirty and and get things done. So this is the the, the journey of a forest. That's quite incredible, and I, I love how you mentioned that you took the innovation, you made it open source, and it went from an innovation to a movement. You created a platform out of it. It's being funded for people are rallying towards it. And I guess that's the journey of change making. As we close, if you could tell us an impact story or if you could tell us any stories from the field. I know you mentioned about the tribals that, that live in the forest and, and how their lives benefit through the thousands of years of, of just uh, ecosystems being preserved. If you could just tell us how, how building back these forests are making a larger difference and creating this movement. We work with a lot of people who live in the forest. Why? Because they are our suppliers. They are our vendors, our business partners. With the larger impact investment change-making world is that we sit in the rooms like the one which we, in which we are sitting right now. And we look at the people who are not financially rich as beneficiaries. I can easily raise a million dollars through some foundation or XYZ foundation, bring out a beautiful brochure, a great impact report and say so many lives have been changed because we gave them sanitation, we gave them this, we gave them clothes, we gave them skills, but we gave them our clothes, we gave them our skills, we gave them our way of life to make them civilized because we think we are. And that is something which has actually done more harm than good. Just a few years ago, two or three years ago, the Supreme Court ordered a few lakhs, I think a million of people who are living in the forest to relocate it, to conserve the wildlife. This is based on an assumption. Humans are disturbing the wildlife or killing them or doing whatever. If you want to save wildlife, you have to remove or separate people from the wild. You do the separation and the wildlife will be conserved. But that's actually not the case. Humans evolved living close to nature. It's not the problem of a tribal of a few of us have decided to lock ourselves in a concrete jungle and get separated from nature. It's our assumption that if they live the kind of life that we are living, they will be well off, better. They will be living a better life. But that's a wrong assumption. What we want to see is everybody involved in this movement to live a life of dignity and earn a great livelihood out of the work that they are doing. We are here to make forests. But in the process, everybody who is a stakeholder, it could be a tribal running a 50,000 seedlings nursery in Chhattisgarh or another person. So I'll tell you this one story of Pentu Pai. His father used to be a Vag is the doctor who would treat people from the forest medicine and he won't have any degree or qualification, but he would be master in the work that he would do it. So, and he used to treat cancer patients using some medicine that he would forage in the nearby forest, Kala National Park. Now his son did well in life, went to school, went to college, did BSc botany and then the Masters of Science and started a nursery. He being the son of forest, son of soil, he focused only on native species. He said, I want to save these forests. I want to spread these forests. He would go to the forest, collect the seeds, germinate these seedlings, 
but nobody would buy these plants that he was growing because nobody wanted these seedlings these these plants everybody was planting ornamental trees ornamental plants or exotic fruits exotic flowers he also started growing a few of these exotics to make his ends meet and as a passion project he kept running his nursery so he would earn the money here and spend the money on this passion project eventually ending up with no money for him that's the story of most of the people who think in social benefit terms and then eventually they end up cribbing about life and it's a downhill kind of lifestyle and i have seen many many social entrepreneurs going through that 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 phase 2018 we met him for the first time there was a indian professor based in new york she had some property close to the kanha national park and she said i want to make a forest here when to make this forest or this this professor on her property and we were looking for suppliers and we met pinto bhai who you know had this a few hundred seedlings of native species and he said that maybe in a year or so i'll just close down this business completely and i'll go to the city to find a job and he said no you continue what you're doing because we might have some orders for you long story short within a year and a half we got him orders for around 2 million seedlings so from a few hundred to 2 millions this transformation happened in two years time now he has purchased a lot more land he is employing around 20 25 people from his village they are running this great nursery next to kanha national park and he is supplying to madhya pradesh to bombay to entire maharashtra up to delhi he has supplied up to delhi and he is also become our consultant so we would take him to punjab for us to 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 do a forest survey for us he would conduct training workshops for our employees to teach them how to collect the seed how to germinate the seed every seed has a different way of growing and he is the person who would develop the standard procedures of germinating these seedlings this is tribal knowledge nobody in the university whether whatever phd's they would have in forest they won't know what went to why knows and that's the reason why we will never be able to work with them but we will always we'll pay the top dollar to work with a person like it because she is adding the kind of value to our work which nobody else can and this is the kind of veil that is hidden in the forest that is there with the people of the forest and this is what they should be paid for so never in my life i would think that they are the bottom of pyramid beneficiaries which needs to be given some loose change of profit of a multi billion dollar corporation no they are the vendors they are the service provider they are the consultants they are the entrepreneurs they are the enterprising industrialists of forest based industry and they have to be treated that they are the ashoka fellows they are the one the change maker world custodians not the kind of beneficiaries that that we see at the receiving end of a government scheme and this is my biggest learning on in in working at a forest that people who come from soil people who come from the forest people who have their hands and feet buried in the soil and let them they are going to be the future of this plant not the people who are sitting at the tables of policy makers and people who are sitting at un or supreme court so because irrespective of whatever we do on paper the actual 
tangible change is going to happen by these people and irrespective of how less supported they are they will always try because they work with nature not against i think that's absolutely brilliant thank you so much for coming on today for sharing your journey for sharing these stories and really for your efforts towards rebuilding our forests and not just doing it yourself but creating a movement where thousands of people build forests together so thank you for being on everyone at change baker and really appreciate your time pleasure pleasure talking to you and thank you so much for the support you thank you thank you for joining us today we hope this episode inspired you on your change maker journey together we are creating a world where everyone can be a change maker